Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a whiskey smash. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a hard seltzer, and on this week's episode, we are looking at the crime spree of Joe Duncan. Joseph Edward Duncan III was born in Fort Liberty, North Carolina, on February 25, 1963. He was the fourth of five children born to Joseph Edward Duncan Jr. and Lillian Mae Duncan. He had three older sisters and a younger brother. Duncan's father was in the United States Army, and because of this, the family moved from city to city, both within the U.S. and abroad, changing locations every year or two until the elder Duncan retired to Tacoma, Washington, when the younger was around 12 years old. Duncan's mother was described as a domineering woman, but although he claimed after being arrested in 1980 to have been abused as a child, his younger brother disputed this. Duncan's parents split up in 1979 and were divorced in 1983. His sisters soon left the household all at once, and Duncan remained behind with his mother while his brother went on to live with his father after some time. His father would later remarry, giving Duncan a step family. Duncan attended Lakes High School but did not graduate. Duncan had a long history as a violent sexual predator. He committed his first recorded sex crime in 1978 when he was 15 years old. In that incident, he raped a nine-year-old boy at gunpoint. The following year, he was arrested for driving a stolen car. He was sentenced as a juvenile and sent to the boys' ranch in Tacoma, where, according to a report by the Associated Press, he told the therapist assigned to his case that he had bound and sexually assaulted six boys. He also told the therapist that he estimated that he raped 13 younger boys by the time he was age 16. In 1980, Duncan stole a number of guns from a neighbor and abducted a four-year-old boy, raping him at gunpoint. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison for this crime, but was released on parole in 1994 after serving 14 years. While out on parole, Duncan is known to have lived in several places in the Seattle area. He was arrested again in 1996, this time for marijuana use, and released on parole several weeks later with new restrictions. Authorities believe that Duncan murdered two people in Seattle in 1996 and Anthony Martinez in Riverside County, California in 1997 during his parole period. However, both those cases went cold and were not tied to Duncan until after his arrest in the Groening case. Duncan was arrested in Missouri and returned to prison in 1997 after violating the terms of his parole. He was released from prison on July 4, 2000 with time off for good behavior and moved to Fargo, North Dakota. In March 2005, Duncan was charged with the July 3, 2004 molestation of two boys at a playground in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. On April 5, 2005, he appeared before a Becker County judge who set bail at $15,000. A Fargo businessman with whom Duncan had become acquainted helped him post bail. However, Duncan skipped bail and disappeared. On June 1st, a federal warrant was issued for his arrest on the charge of, quote, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, end quote. On May 16, 2005, authorities discovered the bodies of Brenda Grone, 40, her boyfriend Mark McKenzie, 37, and her son Slade Grone, 13, and their home along Lake Coeur d'Alene outside the city of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. 
Two of Brenda's other children, nine-year-old Dylan and eight-year-old Shasta, were missing. An Amber Alert was issued and searchers combed the area for the missing children while authorities investigated the deaths at the home as homicides. Autopsies determined the cause of death to be quote-unquote blunt trauma to the head. Authorities also noted that the victims had been bound. Seven weeks later, in the early morning hours of July 2nd, 2005, Shasta was seen at a Denny's restaurant in Coeur d'Alene in the company of an unknown man. A waitress, manager, and two customers at the restaurant recognized the girl from media reports. They surreptitiously called police and positioned themselves to prevent the man from leaving. Police officers arrived at the restaurant and arrested the man, later identified as Duncan, without incident. Shasta identified herself to a waitress at the restaurant and to authorities and was taken to Kootenai Medical Center for medical treatment and to be reunited with her father. Coeur d'Alene police, meanwhile, detained Duncan on kidnapping charges and on his outstanding federal warrant. When Shasta was found without Dylan, authorities held little hope of finding the boy alive. Police asked the public for tips, specifically with respect to sightings of the stolen red Jeep Cherokee with Missouri license plates that Duncan was driving at the time of his arrest. Authorities discovered that Duncan had rented the car in Minnesota and never returned it. A gas station employee in Kellogg, Idaho, about 40 miles east of Coeur d'Alene, recognized the vehicle as one that had stopped at her station hours before Duncan was arrested. The employee suspected the girl wandering around the station might have been Shasta, but did not confront her as nothing appeared out of the ordinary. The employee and her manager notified authorities after reviewing surveillance camera footage and identifying Duncan and Shasta in the video. On July 4th, 2005, investigators found human remains at a remote makeshift campsite in the Lolo National Forest near St. Regis, Montana. The remains were sent to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia for DNA testing and were positively identified as those of Dylan. During the trial, it emerged that Duncan shot Dylan at point-blank range by holding a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun to his head. Duncan's arrest led the FBI to launch a nationwide review of unsolved missing child cases. He was implicated as a possible suspect in several crimes that occurred between 1994 and 1997 when he was on parole, and between 2000 and 2005 when he was free from prison. Although he was cleared as a suspect in some cases, authorities in California and Washington had enough evidence to believe Duncan had committed unsolved murders in their jurisdictions. Duncan had been convicted in three courts, an Idaho District Court for the kidnapping and murders of Brenda and Slade and Mark McKenzie, in the United States District Court for the District of Idaho for the kidnapping of the grown children, the murder of Dylan and other crimes, and a California Superior Court for the kidnapping and murder of Anthony Martinez. On January 18, 2007, Duncan was indicted by a federal grand jury on 10 counts of, quote, kidnapping, kidnapping resulting in death, aggravated sexual abuse of a minor, and sexual exploitation of a child resulting in death, end quote, and other crimes related to illegal firearm possession and vehicle theft. He was arraigned the following day at a federal court in Boise, where a judge ordered Duncan to stand trial the following March. Duncan's defense attorneys immediately requested a postponement, which was granted the week the trial was originally scheduled to begin. A new trial date was set for January 22nd, 2008. 
On December 3rd, 2007, Duncan pleaded guilty to all 10 charges against him. As a condition of his agreement, Shasta would not have to testify in the penalty phase of the trial. Due to a gag order, other details of the plea agreement were not released. On January 18, 2007, the same day Duncan was indicted in federal court, Riverside County officials announced that he was charged with Martinez's murder. Despite attempts by Riverside County officials to extradite Duncan to California, including an appeal by then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, Duncan's federal trial proceeded. He was eventually extradited to California on January 24, 2009, five months after being sentenced to death by the federal court. On March 15, 2011, Duncan pleaded guilty to Martinez's murder and was sentenced to two life terms on April 15, 2011. As part of a plea deal, the sentence came without the possibility of parole or right to appeal. Although Duncan could have faced a separate death sentence, in addition to the ones he had already been sentenced to in federal court, Riverside County District Attorney Paul Zerabosh justified the life sentence by stating that he had consulted with the Martinez family who wanted closure in the case and that, quote, the federal system will kill him long before the state of California would have seriously considered it, end quote. Duncan was imprisoned on federal death row at the United States Penitentiary in Indiana. In October 2020, Duncan underwent brain surgery after he was diagnosed with glidoplastoma. He declined any treatment and projected chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Medical staff at the Federal Bureau of Prisons estimated that he had between 6 and 12 months to live. He died on March 28, 2021 at the age of 58. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the crimes of Joseph Duncan? When we first got into this episode, I didn't think I was familiar with him. But then uh, when we got to Shasta and Dylan, I definitely remembered what this case was. I think it's always very shocking to hear about a teenager or a child committing crimes, especially sex crimes against other children. It's always very upsetting. And to know that this continued, I mean, it, I'm sure most often it does continue into adulthood if it's really not treated or explored somehow. And obviously, this is just another example of it. To know that he just victimized so many people in just like the first like 18, 20 years of his life is mind blowing. And then to see that, you know, he's getting released early on parole after raping and abducting a 14-year-old boy with knowing that he has a history of doing similar things to other children is, I just don't understand it. We've talked about this so many times on here about how, you know, like sex crimes were not taken seriously and sometimes aren't to this day. It doesn't make any sense. It's no wonder that he went on to commit other crimes when he was on parole, when he was out. And then to ultimately for him to go on to kill all three people, it's terrible. I don't want to say that this could have been avoided, but to know that he murdered three people, it's so disheartening to hear about. And then to hear how brutally poor Dylan was murdered as a child, and I'm sure all the trauma that Shasta has faced in her life, it's just despicable, really. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. This 
guy, Duncan, gave such clear evidence as to why he should never have been released. I don't know what the parole board was thinking when they gave him like credit for good behavior and released him back into the public. The fact that he also had a history of skipping bail as well. Like, I just think that the criteria that goes into who gets parole, especially when it comes to violent sex crimes, definitely needs to be reevaluated or eliminated altogether. We'll talk more about habitual offenders laws later, but he's definitely someone that should have been covered under some sort of the community society is safer if this guy is in prison. I definitely think that just when you look at his victims and their families, he has brought just a whole host of trauma to many different communities. And it's also something where you look at his history. And a lot of times when we talk about these cases, we describe horrific childhoods that individuals go through, right? Where their parents are either absent or they're abusive. There's some sort of trauma that happened to them. And that is seen as a reason for why their psychopathy or sociopathy developed and just their lack of care for other humans. But this is a case where that's not present. And to me, that is just very eerie in a way, where it's another case of nurture versus nature and how some people are, you know, I hate to use this term, but I think it's one that fits. Some people are just born bad. Some people are just born with the element of their psychology that is harmful to other people. And in this case, it's not that he didn't have interactions with the justice system. His justice system failed in a lot of different ways. And it's sad. And, you know, my heart goes out to the victims and just the trauma that Shasta had to go through. Being with this man, knowing what he did to her family, especially her brother, it's shocking. It really is. It's one of those cases where you just shake your head and try to think of what could have prevented this. And unfortunately, it's not much that can be done. Due to the nature of where he committed crimes, Duncan faced many extraditions. This is necessary when someone needs to be tried in different courts. In an extradition, one jurisdiction delivers a person accused or convicted of committing a crime in another jurisdiction over to the other's law enforcement. It is a cooperative law enforcement procedure between two jurisdictions and depends on the arrangements made between them. In addition to the legal aspects of the process, extradition also involves the physical transfer of custody of the person being extradited to the legal authority of the request and jurisdiction and all the responsibilities that come with having custody of that person. In an extradition process, one sovereign jurisdiction, in this case, this is referring to a country, typically makes a formal request to another sovereign jurisdiction, the requested state. If the fugitive is found within the territory of the requested state, then the requested state may arrest the fugitive and subject them to its extradition process. And I do want to note that this is different than deportation. 
between countries, extraditions is normally regulated by treaties, where extradition is compelled by laws, such as among sub-national jurisdictions. This concept may be known more generally as Radiation. The consensus in international law is that a state does not have an obligation to surrender an alleged criminal to a foreign state because one principle of sovereignty is that every state has a legal authority over the people within its borders. Such absence of international obligation and the desire for the right to demand such criminals from other countries have caused a web of extradition treaties or agreements to evolve. When no applicable extradition agreement is in place, a sovereign may still request the expulsion or lawful return of an individual pursuant to the requested state's domestic laws. This can be accomplished through the immigration laws of the requested state or other facets of the requested state's domestic laws. The codes and penal procedures in many countries contain provisions allowing for extradition to take place in the absence of an extradition agreement. Sovereigns may therefore still request the expulsion or lawful return of a fugitive from the territory of a request state in the absence of an extradition treaty. Generally, an extradition treaty requires that a country seeking extradition be able to show that the relevant crime is sufficiently serious. There exists a prima facie case against the individual sought. The event in question qualifies as a crime in both countries. The extradited person can reasonably expect a fair trial in the recipient country, and the likely penalty will be appropriate to the crime. Most countries require themselves to deny extradition requests if, in the government's opinion, the suspect is sought for a political crime. Many countries, such as Mexico, Canada, and most European nations, will not allow extradition if the death penalty may be imposed on the suspect unless they are assured that the death sentence will not be passed or carried out. These restrictions are normally clearly spelled out in the extradition treaties that a government has agreed upon. They are, however, controversial in the United States, where the death penalty is practiced in some U.S. states, as it is seen by many as an attempt by foreign nations to interfere with the U.S. criminal justice system. In contrast, pressures by the U.S. government on these countries to change their laws or even sometimes to ignore their laws is perceived by many in those nations as an attempt by the United States to interfere with their sovereign right to manage justice within their own borders. Famous examples include the extradition dispute with Canada on Charles Ng. The federal structure of some countries, such as the United States, can pose particular problems for extraditions when the police power and the power of foreign relations are held at different levels of the federal hierarchy. For instance, in the United States, most criminal prosecutions occur at the state level and most foreign relations occur on the federal level. In fact, under the United States Constitution, Foreign countries may not have official treaty relations with the individual states. Rather, they may have treaty relations only with the federal government. As a result, a U.S. state that wishes to prosecute an individual located in foreign territory must direct this extradition request through the federal government, which will negotiate the extradition with the requested state. However, due to the constraints of federalism, any conditions on the extradition accepted by the federal government, such as to not impose the death penalty, are not binding on the states. 
Several countries such as Austria, Brazil, Bulgaria, Chechnya, or the Czech Republic, France, Germany, Japan, Morocco, Norway, the People's Republic of China, mainland China, Portugal, Taiwan, Turkey, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Switzerland, Syria, Israel, Slavia, the UAE, and Vietnam have laws against extraditing their own citizens to another country's jurisdiction. Instead, they have special laws in place that give them jurisdiction over crimes committed abroad by or against their own citizens. By virtue of such jurisdiction, they can locally prosecute and try citizens accused of crimes committed abroad as if the crime had occurred within the country's border. The refusal of a country to extradite suspects or criminals to another may lead to international relations being strained. Often, the country to which extradition is refused will accuse the other country of refusing extradition for political reasons, regardless of whether or not this is justified. In some cases, a state has abducted an alleged criminal from the territory of another state, either after normal extradition procedures fail or without attempting to use them. Quote-unquote extraordinary remediation is an extrajudicial procedure in which criminal suspects, generally suspected terrorists or supporters of terrorist organizations, are transferred from one country to another. This procedure differs from extradition as the purpose is to extract information from suspects while extradition is used to return fugitives so that they can stand trial or fulfill their sentence. The United States Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, allegedly operates a global radiation program, which from 2001 to 2005 captured an estimated 150 people and transported them around the world. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the complexities of extradition? And do you agree with the restrictions such as not extraditing its own citizens that some countries have? I truly did not know it was this complicated. (laughs) I think it's interesting to hear about too, and I definitely understand why this causes issues, why some countries are hesitant to send to extradite people, why some people think that, well, that means like you don't trust us to do, to carry out our justice system. I understand why there are so many countries that have laws against extraditing their citizens, I do understand it, having like the special laws in place to keep them in the country and just put them, set them to trial there. But I do wonder if there is like a impact on victims that way. Like if someone from Bulgaria committed a crime elsewhere and then they were just tried in Bulgaria, it might not be easy for said victim's family to get over there to see the justice played out or maybe they would get a more lenient sentence there rather than where the crime was committed. So I don't know. I feel like there's like some pros and cons to both of it, but I don't really have like a, yes, I like it. Yes, I don't. Or no, I don't, but I get it. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Extraditions is one of those things in geopolitics where on the surface, you would think that it would be so simple. Like, okay, I think this person has committed a crime. They're not in my country. They're in yours or they're not in my state. They're in yours. Send them over. But of course, when you have different legal systems, different parameters for how laws are carried out, you're going to have that impasse that's really hard to get over. I do think 
that it's so weird that of course like oh you're not extraditing this person you must have some you know nefarious purpose of course a state is going to say that it doesn't make any sense to me but that's just how they want to do things when it comes to the different restrictions some make sense to me you know if you have a legal system that has said that the death penalty is cruel and barbaric It doesn't make much sense for you to send someone to a place where they are going to be subjected to something you have deemed as barbaric. It doesn't make any sense. Just like with the political prisoners, why you wouldn't send because you feel that is wrong. However, when it comes to countries not extraditing their own citizens, because there's been so many cases where the whole they can locally prosecute, but they never actually do. And the person is just walking free. And we see this several times. I mean, Roman Polanski is probably the name that comes to mind first for me, where it's not like he's sitting in a French prison right now right? Where he was prosecuted for the same crime over there. He walked free and lives a fairly normal life. He was still directing movies. They just weren't extraditing him. He never had to actually be held accountable for the crimes that he committed just by circumstance of him being a French citizen and honestly being able to get to France before he was arrested. So I personally don't agree with it. I think that it's important that justice is carried out and people shouldn't have the protection of fleeing borders. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I get that when it comes to certain nations, there is a fear that the justice won't be carried out properly. There's humanitarian questions. And if that's the case, I get it. But in most of these cases that we read about, it's just the person got to the country in time and they travel to friendly nations just to make sure that they escape justice. And I like that you pointed out the possible effect that it could have on the victims, especially when it comes to the closure aspect of what the justice system brings. If it does happen in another country, they're not going to see it. And it's also that kind of duality of a lot of times they know the person has been arrested. A lot of times these people are convicted and amnesia just means they're not actually in the court, but they're still convicted. But they're walking free like they haven't done anything. They're not getting any other ramifications, like I said before. So I understand why countries do it. They're trying to protect their own citizens, but I just wish it was something that we would do away with at the international level. Due to his previous crimes, many wanted Duncan to be subject to the habitual offender rule, more commonly known as the three-strike rule prior to when he committed the crimes that landed him on death row. In the United States, habitual offender laws have been implemented since at least 1952 and are part of the United States Justice Department's anti-violence strategy. The expression, quote-unquote, three strikes and you're out, is derived from baseball, where a batter against whom three strikes are recorded strikes out. These laws require a person who is convicted of an offense and who has one or two other previous convictions to serve a mandatory life sentence in prison, with or without parole, depending on the jurisdiction. 
The purpose of the laws is to drastically increase the punishment of those who continue to commit offenses after being convicted of one or two serious crimes. 28 states have some form of a three strikes law. A person accused under such laws is referred to in a few states, notably Connecticut and Kansas, as a quote-unquote persistent offender, while Missouri uses the unique term quote-unquote prior and persistent offender. In most jurisdictions, only crimes at the felony level qualify as serious offenses, and it may turn on which felonies are defined as being serious, which may vary depending on the jurisdiction in particular, whether a subject felony must include violence or not. The three strikes law significantly increases the prison sentences of persons convicted of a felony who have been previously convicted of two or more violent crimes or serious felonies and limits the ability of these offenders to receive a punishment other than a life sentence. The practice of imposing longer prison sentences on repeat offenders versus first-time offenders who commit the same crime is present throughout most of American history as judges often take in consideration prior offenses when sentencing. However, there is a more recent history of mandatory prison sentences for repeat offenders. But such sentences were not compulsory in each case, and judges had much more discretion as to what term of incarceration should be imposed. The first true three strikes law was passed in 1993 when Washington voters approved Initiative 593. California passed its own in 1994 where their voters passed Proposition 184 by an overwhelming majority with 72% in favor and 28% against. The initiative proposed to the voters had the title of three strikes and you're out, referring to the de facto life imprisonment after being convicted of three violent or serious felonies, which are listed under California Penal Code Section 1192.7. The concept swiftly spread to other states, but none of them chose to adopt the law as sweeping as California's. By 2004, 26 states and the federal government had laws that satisfied the general criteria for designation as a three-strike statute, namely that a third felony conviction brings a sentence of 20 years to life where 20 years must be served before becoming parole eligible. A 1997 study found that in California, quote, the three strikes law did not decrease serious crime or petty theft rates below the level expected on the basis of pre-existing trends, end quote. Three strikes laws have been cited as an example of the McDonaldification of punishment and was the focus of criminology and penalology interest has shifted away from retribution and treatment tailored to the individual offender and towards the control of high-risk groups based on aggregations and statistical averages. A three-strike system achieves uniformity and punishment of criminals in a certain class, three-time offenders, in a way that is analogous to how a fast food restaurant achieves uniformity of its products. Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee are the only states in the United States to date that have two strikes laws for the most serious violent crimes, such as murder, rape, serious cases of robbery, etc. And they all mandate a sentence of life imprisonment without parole for a conviction of any such crime a second time around. 
The exact application of the three strikes laws varies considerably from state to state, but the laws call for life sentences for at least 25 years on their third strike. In the state of Maryland, any person who receives their fourth strike for any crime of violence will automatically be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. Some states include additional lesser offenses that one would not normally see as violent. The list of crimes that count as serious or violent in the state of California is much longer than that of other states and consists of many lesser offenses that include firearm violations, burglary, simple robbery, arson, and providing hard drugs to a minor and drug possession. Texas does not require any of the three felony convictions to be violent, but specifically excludes certain quote-unquote state jail felonies from being counted for enhancement purposes. There have been numerous studies on the effects of the three-strike rule laws. A 2004 study found that three-strikes laws did not have a very significant effect on the deterrence of crime, but also that this ineffectiveness may be due to the diminishing marginal returns associated with having pre-existing repeat offender laws in place. A study written by Robert Parker, director of the Presley Center for Crime and Justice Studies at UC Riverside, states that violent crime began falling almost two years before California's three-strike law was enacted in 1994. The study argues that the decrease in crime is linked to lower alcohol consumption and lower rates of unemployment. A 2007 study from the Vera Institute of Justice in New York examined the effectiveness of incapacitation under all forms of sentencing. The study estimated that if U.S. incarceration rates were increased by 10%, the crime rate would decrease by at least 2%. However, this action would be extremely costly to implement. Another study found that three strikes laws discourage criminals from committing misdemeanors for fear of a life prison sentence. Although this deters crime and contributes to lower crime rates, the laws may possibly push previously convicted criminals to commit more serious offenses. The study's author argues that this is so because under such laws, felons realize that they could face a long jail sentence for their next crime regardless of type, and therefore they have little to lose by committing serious crimes rather than minor offenses. Through these findings, the study weighs both the pros and cons for the law. A 2015 study found that three strike laws were associated with a 33% increase in the risk of fatal assaults on law enforcement officers. Some criticisms of three strikes laws are that they clog the court system with defendants taking cases to trial in an attempt to avoid life sentences and clog jails with defendants who must be detained while waiting for these trials because the likelihood of a life sentence makes them a flight risk. Life imprisonment is also an expensive correctional option and potentially inefficient given that many prisoners serving these sentences are elderly and therefore both costly to provide health care services to and statistically at low risk for recidivism. Dependents of prisoners serving long sentences may also become burdensome on welfare services. Prosecutors have also sometimes evaded the three strikes law by processing arrests as parole violations rather than new offenses or by bringing misdemeanor charges when a felony charge would have been legally justified. There is also potential for witnesses to refuse to testify or juries to refuse to convict if they want to keep a defendant from receiving a life sentence. This can introduce disparities in punishment, defeating the goal of treating third-time offenders uniformly. Sometimes a non-violent felony also counts as a third strike, which thus would result in a disproportional penalty. 
Three strikes laws have thus been also criticized for imposing disproportional penalties and focusing too much on street crime rather than white collar crime. Jenny, what are your thoughts on habitual offender laws and do you agree with them? I would say for the most part, I don't agree with them because like we've just said, I feel like there is a lot of criticism and to me, it shows that they don't really do what we hope and intend that they do. And I do think what we said about them just kind of clogging up the prison system and the justice system is really like what they're doing. That's, I think, what it's impacting most. I don't really know necessarily if it's keeping tons and tons of people safe. I also don't like how this varies state by state, like what is considered like a violent crime or what could be included, because some of the stuff that we talked about in relation to California, let me see if I can find it. Like burglary, providing drugs to a minor and drug possession. I don't know. I don't think that warrants life in prison without parole. I thought the point of calling this like the McDonaldfication, whatever, of the justice system is really interesting. And it, it does kind of take away the nuances that many of these cases have. I think if it was strictly going to be things like murder, rape, maybe robbery, assault, or certain types of assault, then I would, I think, be okay with having the three strikes laws. I think the automatic one in Maryland that you don't get parole is, I think, too extreme, in my opinion. And the two strikes in South Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee, and everything that comes with that is way too extreme, in my opinion, too. What do you think? I agree with them in theory, right? Like we talked about in this case where there were so many interactions for Duncan and the criminal justice system, he should have been kept in there. But he had three, well, more than three, violent felonies against minors. And that, I think, would precipitate some sort of habitual offender laws. But the fact that they are costly, they don't work, and you could end up in a situation, and unfortunately, especially in California, which is sort of the poster child for habitual offender laws, you have it where someone has like possession of marijuana and they have a life sentence and all of the ramifications that comes with that. I agree with you that the states with two strike laws, that is ridiculous. To me, I think that you should look at each case, look at the chances that this person is going to reoffend, and then assess their sentence that way. I think the habitual offender laws, while again, in theory, they sound good, they go into the same bucket for me as mandatory minimums, where the more you remove nuance, the more you remove the judge's ability to have some discretion and to consider mitigating factors, the worse outcomes you're going to have. I'm not saying that people need to be a bleeding heart for defendants, but we need to have some sort of understanding of the different aspects that go on in different crimes. And I definitely agree that in general, habitual offender laws focus way too much on street crime and not white collar crimes. As you notice, a lot of the things that would qualify under three strikes laws have nothing to do with white collar crime and the devastating effects that they can have on people's lives as well. So, so many things need to change. 
we do live in a state that has habitual offender laws and it's ridiculous. And then the last thing about it is, like you said, it doesn't even work. The fact that you could increase incarceration rates by 10%, but you only get a 2% reduction in crime, it's a waste. I think there are other places that you can put that money that you're using to incarcerate people that would have a much greater effect on the amount of people that are arrested and the amount of people that are committing crimes. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the crimes of Joseph Duncan. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe. 